This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, August 12th. I'm Robert Bluey. And I'm Virginia Allen. Today, we are talking with Stephen Hawkins, the Global Director of Research at More in Common, an organization focused on building a more united America. It's been 50 years since President Lyndon Johnson declared a war on poverty. So, how are we doing? Genevieve Wood brings us a commentary with the answer. We also read your letters to the editor and share a good news story about how one simple purchase at Payless Shoes led a family to provide thousands of pairs of shoes for kids in need. Before we get to today's show, Virginia and I want to tell you about another one of our great podcasts here at The Daily Signal. It's called Problematic Women. Every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, co-hosts Kelsey Buller and Lauren Evans sort through the news to bring you stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. You will hear them talk about everything from pop culture to policy. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for today's show. Coming up next. We are joined on the Daily Signal podcast today by Stephen Hawkins, the Global Director of Research at More in Common. It's an organization that was established in 2017 to build communities and societies that are stronger, more united, and more resilient to the increasing threats of polarization and social division. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. You know, the topic of unity is something that our nation is grappling with right now. Uh, you know, this past week has, has been a tough one in the United States. Uh, and it's a topic that we've discussed on this podcast in the past with people like Arthur Brooks and Jeannie Safer and others. So tell us a little bit more about your organization and the mission of More in Common. Well, we got our start uh, from a tragic beginning. Sadly, um, our, some of our co-founders were very closely connected to a member of parliament who in 2016 was killed because of her support for embracing Syrian refugees into the UK. And that created a big national moment where there was some alarm about what what was happening in the UK for a sitting member of government to be killed by one of their constituents for their stance on a policy of accepting refugees. And that began a, a broader set of reflections about sources of division, and polarization in the UK, in France, in Germany, in the United States. And our organization has spent the last few years talking to thousands and thousands of people in those countries, trying to understand their perspectives, how they connect to politics, how they connect to their identities, and ultimately trying to find ways to rebuild those societies so that people feel more at home and less afraid of what's coming. Stephen, yourself and two of your colleagues have recently published a report called The Perception Gap. Can you give us just a brief summary of that report and what The Perception Gap is? Yeah. So The Perception Gap builds off of uh, pretty robust academic literature into a subject that's called false polarization. And false polarization is the idea that among people who are the most politically engaged they tend to overestimate how extreme and how different and how ideological their political opponents are. And so we wanted to explore this in the context of 2019, 2018, and the political uh, environment that we're in now in the United States. And the way we did that was we asked Democrats, what do you think Republicans think on a number of key issues? 
from immigration to racism to Islam. And then we asked Republicans, what do you think Democrats think on a number of issues, immigration, attitudes towards police, being patriotic. And then all, then all we did was we looked at the difference between what Republicans told us they actually think about these issues and what Democrats estimated that they would think on those same issues and vice versa. And what we generated from that was something we call the perception gap, which is the difference between what people actually believe and what their political opponents estimate that they'll believe. And the key headline from our study is that the more politically engaged people, the most active voters, the biggest donors, the you know, biggest activists on each side tend to overestimate how extreme and how different their political opponents' views are. Um, and the people who are closer to the middle, who are less politically engaged, tend to have a better read on what their political opponents think. It's really fascinating, the research that you've done. You know, I want to talk about another report that you did last year, which is actually how I first uh, learned more about more in uh, common, and it was called Hidden Tribes, a study of America's polarized landscape. Uh, you not only did this report uh, prior to the election, but then you did an update after last year's midterm election. Uh, what do you mean by hidden tribes? What are they? And, uh, and what does the report uh, uh, conclude? Well, the reason we call them hidden is because we tend to think and discuss American politics along the lines of demographics, white people, rural voters, black voters, um, highly educated, or in political categories of the parties, Democrats, Republicans. And what we did with our analysis in Hidden Tribes was we looked for patterns in the way that people's psychology and orientation towards politics were kind of distributed across the country. It's a statistical process called cluster analysis. And what we did was we looked for those patterns. Where are there like very similar people um, whose orientation towards society on things like how they raise kids, things like how worried they are about whether the world's becoming less safe, um, and looking at their values, things like how much they care about preserving authority figures in society, how much they care about um, sense of fairness. And we grouped people according to those attributes, their psychology and also their degree of political engagement. And that gave us a very interesting distribution of seven groups um, from the far left to the far right. And um, using that methodology, we were able to better explain some of the deepest divisions in our country on questions related to race and immigration and healthcare and other issues. Um, and it allowed us to see a little bit deeper into people's psychology and belief system and show how that's connected to people's political beliefs. We also discovered in that group something we call the exhausted majority. This is our interpretation of what about two-thirds of Americans belong to. It's a group of Americans that feels deeply frustrated by the conflict in, in our political system, wants to see some level of compromise, and doesn't feel particularly well represented in the political debate. Well, looking at the different tribes, uh, it was interesting to note that you know we hear obviously a lot about the progressive left or, or the conservative right, but uh, the highest percentage was politically disengaged people. Um, so what can you tell us when it comes to some of those policy issues? Obviously, that is the core focus of our work here at The Daily Signal in terms of covering those big debates. Uh, what can you tell us uh, from your research that you discovered about these various seven tribes and how they do respond to, say, an issue like immigration? So uh, 
the politically disengaged, I'll just start with that and then answer the broader question about immigration. Um, politically disengaged are the most heterogeneous group. This is a group that doesn't have a lot in common with each other, except for the fact that they aren't particularly oriented towards watching the news or reading the news closely about politics. They're not particularly likely to vote. Um, their, their answers to political questions don't line up in a consistent way that shows an ideolo underlying ideology or worldview that connects them to politics. They're more likely to have a position that aligns with Democrats on immigration, but then a position that aligns more with conservatives on abortion, for instance. And so there's a lot going on in that group. They do tend to be uh, lower educated, lower income. Um, they often express finding politics kind of overwhelming. This is a group that uh, in our research we found was most inclined towards believing uh, conspiratorial theories about society, for instance. And so they're a, they're a complex group. As you say, they're 26% of the population. Um, and if they were to all vote, I think we would see different outcomes in our country. Um, but they are, you know, at the moment, they feel that the political system doesn't have much to offer them. And they tend to think along the lines of things like all politicians are the same, they're all corrupt, um, you know, the, the system is rigged for the rich and so on. And that means, leads them to focus more on just making it through their daily lives. This is a group that has um, a lot of young parents in it and who are just trying to make ends meet. Politics is kind of a luxury activity for them that they don't get to indulge in. And then on the question of how these groups differ on issues like immigration, um, we find that there is a, um, a complex story here. There are some elements of immigration where there's a lot of alignment. For instance, most Americans support a policy that would bring, that would bring a process into being for people who are living here without documented status towards becoming a citizen. That's especially true of people who are, were brought here as children, so the, what's called the, the DREAMers and the DACA program. Um, and then there's much, much more division and, un, and a lack of agreement on what immigration is actually doing for our country today. Is immigration leading to more prosperity and better economic outcomes, or is it really a net drain where it's costing the country a lot in terms of public resources? Um, we found in other research we've done that really, if you express that um, uh, your policy objective for immigration, is to preserve our border at the same time that we show humanity and respect towards those who are fleeing from violence and poverty and coming to the United States um, in a way that is respectful of our laws and our culture, you can get most Americans on board with that kind of policy. The trick really with immigration is to commit to both things at the same time. Keep our country safe, keep our country orderly, and then show humane dignity and respect towards people who are coming from outside. Thank you for sharing uh, more information on that. If, uh, if our listeners would like to get any more information about the Hidden Tribes study, they can log on to hiddentribes.us and uh, download the full report as well as the midterm update last year. Going back to your study on the perception gap, what role did you all find that the media and the way that we consume news plays in this gap? Yeah, this was some of our most interesting sets of findings. We found that on average, um, media consumption tends to distort people's perceptions of their political opponents. 
In some ways, it's counterintuitive because the people who are consuming the most news ought to be the most informed. And in many respects, they are the most informed about what's happening in the country. But when it comes to assessing what their political opponents believe, they tend to have really distorted and uh, kind of caricatured understandings of their political opponents. Um, we found that this was true kind of independently of what media source people were reading, but the degree to which it was true varied, um, particularly some of the more uh, hard right-leaning news sources, such as Breitbart, were correlated with the strongest um, overstatement of how extreme Democrat policy views are. And we also found that people who identified, for instance, as Democrats, but occasionally watch Fox News, had a better, more accurate read on Republicans. And similarly, Republicans who occasionally read left-leaning sources or watch left-leaning sources had a better understanding of what their political opponents thought. So the takeaway from us is it's really helpful to have what we refer to as a balanced media diet. Uh, just like with your food, you might have some things that are easy and fun for you to consume and some things which you know kind of need to hold your nose a little bit. Um, but you know that they're good for you because on, on aggregate, they give you the kind of healthiest picture of what the country really thinks. So that's what we're concluding from that section of our report. And as the executive editor of The Daily Signal, I wholeheartedly agree with you on that. I think that's one of the reasons that we were inspired to create a news organization here at the Heritage Foundation. We felt that we were hopefully adding a healthy dose to the diets of Americans in terms of the news that we produce and the focus particularly on on policy issues and the debates that are playing out here in Washington and across the country. So I encourage our listeners always to have that that healthy diet of, uh, of news consumption. Um, as much as we love you listening and reading to The Daily Signal, make sure you're checking out other sources as well. Uh, Stephen, I want to ask you uh, also about the perception gap and specifically uh, the finding on higher education, which really surprised me, uh, that f- people who have a, a higher education and, uh, and a college degree actually, um, you know, are, are contributing to this gap. Uh, what did you discover? That's right. Well, this was particularly interesting on the left side of the spectrum, meaning among Democrats. What we found was that more highly educated Democrats were the ones who were more likely to have the more distorted picture of your average Republican. And that, that correlated to education, but likely not the curriculum that they're that they're consuming as a more highly educated person, but rather that higher educated Democrats tend to filter out the conservatives and Republican friends in their social networks as they become more educated. We found that as Democrats went from high school to college to master's degrees and further degrees, with each increasing step up that ladder of educational attainment, they reported lower and lower levels of Republicans and conservatives in their friend circles. And so what's happening here is is an interesting social effect where Democrats tend to self-select out of politically diverse communities and into a more politically homogenous environment where their day-to-day contact with people who differ from them politically starts to go really southward. And then they end up having less of a less of a direct connection to the reality of everyday Republicans. You all concluded in the report that we're actually less divided in America than we think we are. So 
Do you have any advice or thoughts on how we go about shifting our focus from those differences to the areas that we do agree on? Well, at the level of just your listeners and you know us in this conversation, I think the, the two key takeaways are do keep that balanced media diet that we already talked about. Do try and engage with people who you normally don't talk to because they don't agree with you about politics. Keep those conversations going. It'll be a, a healthy way to stay in touch with what more regular people think who aren't just part of these ideological fringes. But unfortunately, the main takeaway from our study is that the sources of this sense of a deep division in our country are actually institutional. They're the incentive structures in our political system from the way that the parties select their, uh, their nominees in the, in the uh, primary process through to the way that they gain support with campaign donations and all the way through to the way that our voting system works where voting is not obligatory. All of these serve to amplify conflict and a sense of polarization, as do a lot of the incentive structures in our new media landscape where tailoring your content to confirm the perspective of your audience is proving to be a very lucrative approach as opposed to creating a, a balanced, neutral, and objective picture of what's happening in our country. So what I really hope will happen from the release of this report and from other similar efforts is that as a country, we'll start having this conversation about how do we reduce the level of polarization in our country? How do we return to a place where we can focus on things that we have in common and build constructively from there? rather than focusing on the sources of division and exploiting them for revenue as a media organization or for votes as a, as a political party. Stephen, thanks for sharing that advice. And finally, I want to ask you, what's coming up next for More in Common? Do you have future studies in the works or other projects that, uh, that you're working on now? Yeah, so we're going to continue to conduct research and we're looking to build partnerships. More in Common is still a a uh, small organization, only a few dozen people between four countries. And we're looking to build partnerships with organizations that have reach in the numbers of millions and help them to better communicate with a cross-cutting section of the public to help to um, address some of these issues of polarization we're seeing. In France, we partnered with the Catholic Church. It was really struggling to talk about some sensitive issues around immigration and Islam. and um, we're looking to build partnerships like that in the United States as well. That's wonderful. And if our listeners would like to know more about More in Common, you can go to moreincommon.com and uh, find links to your previous research and more information about the organization. Stephen, thanks so much for being with The Daily Signal. Thank you both so much. Tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger government? Become a part of the Heritage Foundation. We're fighting the rising tide of homegrown socialism while developing conservative solutions that make families more free and more prosperous. Find out more at heritage.org. We are clearly spending a lot of money on welfare programs in America. So why do we still have such a high poverty rate? Genevieve Wood explains. Take a listen. When President Lyndon Johnson launched his war on poverty in the 1960s, he pledged to eliminate poverty in America. But more than five decades, several welfare programs, and $25 trillion later, the welfare system has largely failed the poor. 
Currently, the United States spends about a trillion dollars a year on over 90 different federal, state, and local welfare programs. Yet around 12% of Americans are still considered poor. We are clearly spending a lot of money. So why do we still have such a high poverty rate? The simplest answer is that the government does not count most welfare benefits as income when measuring poverty. That means taxpayers can spend and spend, but the poverty rate will always seem to remain unchanged. In reality, not even the government can spend a trillion dollars a year and have no impact on poverty. Once cash, food, and housing benefits are measured accurately, the poverty rate falls from 12 to 4%. But does this mean the war on poverty has been a success? Not really. In launching the war on poverty, President Johnson declared that he wanted to address the causes, not just the symptoms of poverty. He said he intended to shrink, not increase, dependence on government. His goal was to increase self-sufficiency, the ability of individuals to support their families without reliance on government handouts. And that should remain our goal today. Unfortunately, by that very measure, the current welfare state is an absolute bust. What has gone wrong? Well, the main problem is that our welfare system discourages work and it penalizes marriage. Work and marriage clearly raise incomes, but more importantly, both are inherently linked to a person's well-being and happiness. For example, marriage is the number one factor in promoting upward mobility for children. Because welfare is anti-work and anti-marriage, it inherently harms the very people it was supposed to help, especially children. Why has this happened? Well, as welfare benefits grew over the years, they increasingly served as a substitute for a working parent. Single mothers were discouraged from marrying the fathers of their children because that reduced their benefits. And as the role of the father was undermined, mothers were increasingly left to raise their children on their own. Sadly, that cycle continues today, as many children who grow up on welfare eventually follow in their parents' footsteps when they have families of their own. So what do we do? Well, we need to reverse the current system, which discourages work and penalizes marriage. Work is the fastest and most effective way to get out of poverty and become prosperous. Welfare programs should require those who can work to work or prepare for work as a condition of getting aid. And the substantial penalties against marriage, those should be removed. Finally, it's important to be transparent about the dollars spent and the benefits received. It's hard to reform a government program when how much it truly cost and how many people it's actually helping is not clear for taxpayers. Most Americans want a social safety net that helps those who can't help themselves. As we wage the war against poverty for the next generation, let's fight smarter. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? If you want to understand what's happening at the court, subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show and in the Daily Signal's Morning Bell email newsletter. Virginia, who do you have first? In response to Jarrett Stepman's article, Socialism may be absurd, but it's no laughing matter. Terry T. writes, Socialism advocates that the production, distribution, and exchange of goods and services 
should be owned or highly regulated by the government. Tossing the term democratic in front to make the concept more palatable does not change the underlying definition. And Drew Page writes, Socialism isn't funny. It's frightening. What is funny are the comments made by those who never lived under socialism or who make it sound like a good thing. Everybody gets everything for free. It's a childlike fantasy. The fantasy bears no resemblance to the real and awful consequences of socialism. The people promoting socialism here in the United States are playing with fire. Your letter could be featured on next week's show. Send an email to letters at dailysignal.com or leave a voicemail message at 202-608-6205. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. What better way to start your week than with some good news? Today, Abby Strew, an intern here at the Heritage Foundation, is joining us once again to share a great story. Abby, over to you. Thanks, Virginia. Our good news story this week takes place in Alma, Arkansas, where a little girl inspired a huge act of kindness. In May, Carrie Jernigan decided to take her children to Payless to purchase them new shoes. While shopping, her oldest daughter asked an incredible question. Could we buy a boy in my class a new pair of shoes? She has the biggest heart, and she said, there's a boy in my class who loves Avengers, and his shoes are too small. Could you buy him these? And I was like, of course. Carrie went ahead to buy the extra pair of Avengers sneakers for her daughter's classmate. But a thought struck her as she prepared to pay for the shoes. As I was checking out, I just said, how much for the rest of the shoes in the store? Almost joking. And then I could see the clerk's face, her will start to turn, and she finished checking me out. And she said, can I have your number? After she and her kids returned home from the store, She received a phone call from the district manager at Payless, who told her she could in fact buy out the entire store. The Alma branch of the store was closing, so all of the merchandise was easily available. However, they had just received a new shipment. That meant that the entire store had over 1,500 shoes in stock. Carrie, however, didn't hesitate to continue her plan. Sometimes, you need a child's innocence and heart to inspire you to make a big difference. And not just Carrie was inspired. After news broke of the buyout, people began contacting the Jernigan family to offer donations of additional shoes. They received so many donations that the family decided to host a back-to-school bash on Saturday at Alma Middle School, where they'll be giving out shoes and school supplies. You know, I always tell my kids if you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, they say, be kind. And so that's, I don't care what they do in life as long as they're kind and good people. And so it just reiterates to me that, um, their heart's in the right place, and if it's in the right place, they can do amazing things. Carrie's definitely setting a good example for her children. It's heartwarming to hear about people who are so moved by a small act of kindness in the moment that they take that act and expand upon it. That is such a great story. Abby, thank you so much for sharing. Of course. So we're going to leave it there for today. The Daily Signal podcast comes to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. You can find it on the Ricochet Audio Network, 
All of our shows can be found at dailysignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to listen every weekday by adding the Daily Signal podcast as a part of your Alexa flash briefing. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and a five-star rating. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to other listeners. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. Have a great week. The Daily Signal podcast is executive produced by Rob Bluey and Virginia Allen. Sound designed by Lauren Evans and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.